0: we well, bow our heads heavenly father we thank you for today we thank you that we can gather together and fellowship under the your means of grace and learn more about who you are through your word that we can sing praises to you that we can encourage one another in our mutual salvation and so we ask Lord that as we look into the beast this Antichrist we'd be reminded of the true Christ and that he has control over all things and we uh, also pray Lord that today we would be reminded that we have to be a people that accept your sovereignty, uh, even in difficult times, and also rejoice in the good times, that we would accept your providential will. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to do a little bit of review of where we left off last time. We were in, of course, Revelation chapter 13, where we had seen a description of the beast, which is the Antichrist. And so that's why I want to begin again, just to kind of get us into the swing of things once more. And so I'm just going to read from Revelation 13, verse 1b, and then I'll fill in what the beast looked like that John was describing. John said, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now, remember that I had put this little diagram together to try to explain what it is that John was seeing. And I think it's very clear, and we'll see more evidence of this when we get to Revelation 17, that the seven heads are actually seven kingdoms and sometimes it's synonymous with seven kings but there are seven kingdoms and we said that these are the kingdoms that really had oppressed God's people beginning with Egypt and then you go to the Assyrians remember they crushed the northern uh, part of Israel the ten tribes in 722 BC you have Babylon of course they destroyed Jerusalem in 586 you had Persia which really set the Jews free And allowed them to go back to their homeland and uh, set their temple up. But remember, they were almost wiped out. Remember the story of Esther. And we saw that they were persecuted there as well. There was Greece. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, 167 BC, desecrated the temple. Um, He was a foreshadowing of the beast to come. You had the Roman Empire who tried to crush Christianity. And then finally, you're going to have a revived Roman Empire. Now, as I say revived, I'm not claiming that Rome is going to somehow become a power again, but it's the offshoot nations that flowed from Rome. And that's the idea, I think, present in the scriptures. Why? Because in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, the picture of the last kingdom blends into the kingdom of the beast. It goes from Rome to the offshoot of Rome. And so the Antichrist is going to sit in this revived Roman Empire, and he is going to have 10 kings that align with him, and that's why we saw there were 10 horns. These ten horns are ten kings that will align with the beast, the Antichrist, with his last kingdom that he'll be reigning over. And so that's what it looks like. It kind of looks like a really bad-looking turkey. (laughs) Right? So those ten horns are ten kings that will be reigning with Antichrist who reigns over a revived Roman Empire. Now, I'm going to be modifying this diagram as we go because the Bible actually calls us to do that. And I'll show you why when we get to Revelation 17, we'll look at that here this morning. Now, the next slide we looked at, remember we saw there was a composite nature of the beast. And the reason I think this is significant is it shows the beast is really a composite of all that is opposed God. All of the nations that have come against God's people and his plans, the beast, in a sense, encapsulates them all. And so he's comprised, as you see, it says, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Notice the simile He's not a leopard, he's like a leopard. Okay, then he says, and his feet were like, another simile, those of a bear. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, we know that Satan gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And we saw from this, if you remember, that the leopard was used in Daniel 7 as an imagery of the kingdom of Greece. And we saw that Greece had insatiable bloodlust under its leadership. Whether it be Alexander the Great or the others. We saw that the bear represented the Medo Persian Empire, which did all of its territorial earnings through brute force. And then we saw that the lion represented Babylon, which fearfully devoured. And so when you look up the descriptors of the leopard, the bear, the lion, Greece, Medo Persian, plus the Babylonian Empire, you really see that the beast is ferocious. He's not a kind ruler. He's not a benevolent ruler. He is a malevolent one. He is ferocious, and that fierceness will be turned against God's people. That's what John is depicting. This is not a good man. This is a man who's bent on getting what he wants at the point of arms. What's the golden rule, the, gold, the guy with the gold rules? Well, he's going to have the gold and the guns, and he's going to rule with an iron fist. The counterfeit resurrection, and that's where we left off. We saw, and I think we covered this, I'll read it again, Revelation 13, 3-4. John said, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Now, stop there. Remember, we asked the question, is this a pseudo-resurrection? In other words, did he really die, or did it seem that he died, and therefore the resurrection is just a sleight of hand? Well, we saw evidence in John's writings that when he says, as if it had been slain, that's used elsewhere elsewhere for a real death. For example, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, Notice he said, and I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, that's Jesus, as if slain. Okay, now let's stop there. Was Jesus really slain or was he was obviously really slain, wasn't he? So the same imagery of the same language is being used now for the Antichrist. So I don't think we can say the language as if it had been slain means that he really wasn't slain. I think the way John uses the language is he really was. And so notice the claim is his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Notice that phrase, who is like the beast? That's a phrase that should be reserved for Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh who can save? But now these people, the unregenerate, are giving worship that properly belongs to God, to the Antichrist. Notice why they say, who is like the beast? They say, who is able to wage war against him? And supposedly the people on the planet who want peace, remember Paul says in First Thessalonians 5 that they say peace and safety while sudden destruction comes upon them? The people who claim to want peace reject Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and they get Antichrist, who is the Prince of War. Now, we know that when Jesus returns, there's no warrior like him and he's going to defeat the Antichrist. But that's what the world ultimately wants. The peace nicks and the peace movement, it's a ruse. The world wants a warrior, and they're going to give their allegiance to the Antichrist and reject, as it says in Isaiah 9-6, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So that's where I believe we left off, and then we came to this new slide. That's where we're coming into today, and I'm going to show you there needs to be a modification now to our diagram of who the beast is and the reason why is because he's been killed and then raised from the dead. So, what I want you to do is, I want you to see how the Bible modifies what the kingdom of the beast looks like. And he, they do so, John does, in Revelation 17. So, please turn your Bible ahead to Revelation 17. And the reason I want to do this now is, we're going to come to it again, obviously, but repetition is helpful for learning. So, being that this is going to be introduced to us now, when we come to that passage, when we get to Revelation 17, We'll, we'll hit it again, and I think it'll start to make sense. It's very interesting what happens, and there's some things we can learn from this. Revelation 17, verses 8 through 11. Listen to what John says. He's talking here about the beast and his death, and then what happens is the beast is going to come from the abyss, and he's going to bring about a new kingdom, okay, after his resurrection. And it's a kingdom that comes not any of any earthly kingdom, but one that's purely satanic, and there's evidence of that. Revelation 17, notice verse 8. John says the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now stop there. We have to pick this apart a little bit. What John is describing when he says the beast that you saw was, he's talking about the fact that he lived. When he says is not, he was put to death. But then he comes back to life. So he's talking right there in verse 8 about this resurrection of the beast. Okay, does everyone see that? But notice where it says that he'll come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Those are two separate events. Because what you're going to see is once the beast is put to death, the imagery is he goes to the abyss, but then he's raised, and then later when Jesus returns, he's going to be sent one day to the eternal destruction, the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. Okay? Now, I'll, I'll put this on the diagram so it'll make sense but notice who worships him it says and those who dwell on the earth technical term for only what unbelievers and those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast now stop there didn't during jesus ministry when people saw jesus miracles didn't they wonder didn't they have marvel yes they certainly did well now they're doing it with the antichrist the false christ It says that he was and is and is not, or I'm sorry, was and is not and will come. So notice what they're marveling at is his resurrection. Verse 9, he says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Stop there. Notice now we have defined that those heads, the seven, are actually seven kings. Now kings are synonymous with kingdoms. You see that interchangeably used? in both Daniel and Revelation. And so that's why I think we're in very fine footing to say that the seven, the seven green heads that you see on the screen are in fact kingdoms. Okay, But notice the description now. In verse 10 of Revelation 17, John says, Five have fallen. Okay, Well, which five of the kings and kingdoms had fallen in John's day? Well, let's look on the screen. Of course, we know that Egypt had fallen as a world power. We know that Assyria had fallen. They were destroyed by Babylon. We know that Babylon had fallen to the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persian Empire was destroyed by the Greeks, and the Greeks were destroyed by what? The Romans. So those are the five that had fallen. But notice he says, he says in verse 10, that five had fallen, the other has not yet come. I'm sorry, one is. Does everyone see that in verse 10? Five have fallen, one is. Well, the one is, that is, is Rome. Okay, that existed in John's day. Do you see that? Okay, well, then right after he says one is, that's Rome, he says, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Well, that's the Antichrist kingdom. Okay, now in verse 11, notice he says, he says the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. Okay, so what's very interesting is now we have a modification of what the beast looks like. He is one of the seven, because he's head over the revived Roman Empire. But he himself was also an eighth kingdom. So look on the screen, if you will. Here's what I think John is describing. At a point in time, the Antichrist is going to be killed. Oops, these are, sorry, I got it's out of order. These are the ten horns that reign with him. Hope there's ten. Yep. Ten arrows. Well, at a certain point, the Antichrist is going to be killed, isn't he? He was uh, and is not and is going to come. And so in Revelation 17 and in Revelation 13, his death is being depicted. Well, then the picture is he goes to the abyss, but he's raised from the abyss. And so when he comes up, the picture of his kingdom is that which is won over the abyss. That's the eighth kingdom, and that's given to him after his resurrection. Now, here's something I want you to consider. We talked about this earlier in our studies. Do you remember the language from Psalm 2, where God says of the Son, today I have begotten you? And we talked about how in the ancient Near East, the birthday of the king was not linked to the actual day he came out of the shoot of the mother's womb, but it's actually linked to his ascension to the throne. We see that is true of Jesus, and I think we're seeing that that's also true of the false Christ. That is the beast. And so I want you to look at this with me. I think we have a a direct counterfeit that's going on by Satan. So turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I want to remind you of this idea of the king being anointed as king at his ascension of the throne. Okay, and I'm going to show you that that's what's going on with the Antichrist. When he ascends to being king of the abyss after his resurrection, Then the world gives all the allegiance to him. That's when they say, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against him? And so that's his ascension to the throne. Just as Jesus' resurrection, God says it was his ascension to the throne. So notice Psalm 2, 6 through 8. This is of the true Christ. God says, but as for me, so remember all the nations have taken their stand against Yahweh and his anointed. But in Psalm 2, 6 through 8, he says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, Now, stop there for a moment. That, of course, applies to David. God did that to David, but it ultimately applies to what? The greater David, doesn't it? The Messiah who comes from David. Verse 7, he says, I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, notice in verse 7, God says, Today I have begotten you. The verb there is ganao. It means that he came into existence. That's normally how it's used. Now, does that mean that Jesus, the Messiah, came into existence? There was a time that he was not? No. That's not the point. That's not how the biblical writers understood it. The idea here is that Jesus, the Messiah, is declared to be the Son and the King at his resurrection and ascension. Okay, it's not at his birth. It's not at his incarnation. Now, what evidence do we have of that? Well, turn your Bibles and see how Acts 2, or excuse me, Psalm 2 is interpreted by Acts 13.33, that is Paul who is preaching. So turn your Bibles to Acts 13.33. I want you to see how the apostles understood Psalm 2 and when it is that the Messiah was installed as the king. Is it at his incarnation, that is, at his birth? Or is it his resurrection and ascension? You'll see it's the latter. Acts 13, Listen to what Paul says. He says that God has fulfilled this promise. Now, that was the promise that was given to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so he's talking about the fulfillment of the promise in Acts 13, 33. He says that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. So stop there. What is the fulfillment of all of the promises given to the patriarchs? It's the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 13, 33. He is singling out, the apostle Paul, the resurrection. Now, what passage does he cite right after the resurrection? He says, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, so remember, when God speaks to us through the word of God, he condescends himself to speak through human language. <clears throat> And I think the biblical writers are picking up on something that the people in the ancient Near East would have understood. And that is the birth date of the king is not when he comes out of his mother's womb, but it happens when he ascends to the throne. When is Jesus depicted as ascending to the throne? At his resurrection and ascension. And we see the apostles ascribing that very thing to him here. Well, what's very interesting is when we look at the beast, remember, he's the false Christ. He's trying to replicate what Jesus does. And sure enough, he dies, and he descends into the abyss, but he's also raised from the abyss. And that's how he's the king of an eighth kingdom. And as he ascends from the abyss, he is going to reign as a false Christ, and that is his ascension, and it is the date in which he becomes king of the world for a time. So what Satan is doing is he's doing a counterfeit, isn't he? We have the beast reigning over the abyss and the whole world is going to give allegiance to him. Can you imagine a king that's reigning? We're getting a behind-the-scenes look in the book of Revelation. He's reigning over the abyss and he's reigning over the world. Why? Because the world won't accept the true Christ. They want a false Christ. And that's why Jesus said in John 5, you won't receive me, but you'll receive another who comes in what? In my name. And that ultimately is being fulfilled right here. So what you have to understand is when we look at the beast, yes, he's one of the seven kingdoms, but it appears as that kingdom is done away with at his death, but he's going to be raised again, and that's his false ascension to the throne, all right? So that's what we're looking at here. Now, let's continue on. We're going to see that the beast will blaspheme God, yet we'll also see that God is in control. Revelation 13, 5 through 6, it says, There was given to him... A mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, notice here the beast is what? He's blaspheming God, but it was given to him. And I want you to notice these divine passives. It was given to him to do this blasphemy. Now, one thing we have to ask ourselves, when it says it was given to him, some might argue that the one who gave it to him was Satan. In other words, he's being empowered by Satan, and certainly that's true. But throughout the book of Revelation, when we see these passives, that authority was given, the authority ultimately comes from God. So I think clearly these are divine passives. So who is giving the authority to blaspheme God? God is. Yeah, Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. Go ahead, you've got a question or comment you know i' I'm uh, doing music sometimes, so I'm not in the room all the yeah. time. maybe you've already discussed this, but have you talked about uh, the beast being uh, murdered and then come back to life? is you know some people talk about that as maybe not a total death wound yeah uh, what's your what's your take on that? Did he really die or yeah very good um, in fact we, let me just back up in my slides here uh, a minute. And I'll tell you my best take. I've struggled with that as well. And I'll tell you how I lean uh, from this passage. Notice here, uh, Steve, where it says, I saw one of his heads as if he had been slain. And that as if would seem to me a a pseudo death. But what's interesting is the way John uses that as if language. It's host in the Greek, as if. Um, When he uses it elsewhere, like in John chapter 5, he uses it for the death of Christ. And I'll give you an example right on the screen here. Notice there in Revelation 5, 6, John says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. That's, of course, Jesus. Notice the same language, as if slain. So when I interpret that, I know that Jesus really was slain. And therefore, what I'm saying is when we get to Revelation 13, I want to use John's language consistently. And perhaps he's using it in an inconsistent manner But I would have to have some evidence, I think, of that. And so I'm going to take it in a consistent manner and say the as if is indicating a real death, just as it was with the lamb. So what I'm seeing is in the resurrection, it's a power that's ultimately granted by God. So Satan is allowed, and I think we're going to see this in the slide that we're covering right now, that God is enabling all of these things to take place. So ultimately, all power comes from God. Um, in him we live, move, and have our breathing or breath, right? So nothing can take place apart from God. So ultimately, God is allowing it. So when we ask, where does the power ultimately come from? It's actually God, okay? Now, is it a satanic deception? Yes. And there's no discrepancy between the two. And so that's what I want to wrestle with right now is what I want to wrestle with is the difference between what we call the decreative will, where God decrees something to come about, and his moral will. Does that make sense? So on the one hand, he's going to use immoral beings who are violating his moral law to bring about his decreative will, the things that he necessarily brings about. So anyway, that's the best take I have on it. If someone said that it's a, still a pseudo-resurrection or death... Oh, Job. <laughs> Poor Bobby.
1: was given permission in Job.
0: Oh, very good point, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to get you like a... Uh, Those those flags, what they use on the ships, right? (laughs) Semaphores, I think is what they call them. Thank you. Bob made a great point. He said in the book of Job, remember when Satan came before the throne and he had to what? Ask permission to sift Job. Exactly right. And so God is ultimately in control of that. And so I think you see the same thing. Now, again, if someone says that this is a pseudo death and resurrection, I'm not going to say, boy, you're way off in left field. It, it, It could be. But I'm just trying to go by the language that John is using. and I think it's probably real, but the power is coming ultimately from God. So, does that help, Steve? Okay, perfect. All right, so let me move back now to this other slide, and we're going to hit this very issue that Steve is driving at. Okay, so yeah, so now we see that these divine passives are, of of course, God giving the authority to the beast. And so let's ask the question, how is that right? God gives the ability for people to do that which is wicked. And again, what I think we have to do is we have to see a distinction be- between God's decretive will, the things that he necessarily brings about, and God's moral will. Okay? Now, one place we see that again is in Revelation 17. So please turn your Bibles again to Revelation 17. What's interesting, a lot of that's brought up in Revelation 13 culminates in verse uh, chapter 17, excuse me. So turn your Bibles to Revelation 17 verses 16 through 17, and I'm going to show you how God's decretive will is brought about even by those who are breaking his moral will. Notice in Revelation 17, verses 16 through 17, it says, And the ten horns, remember those are the ten kings, which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire." For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to what? To the beast, until the words of God will be fulfilled. So who put it in the hearts of these wicked kings and the Antichrist to do, God, to, to do wickedly? Well, God did. Okay, so God is actually giving the heart transplant so that these people want to do that. Now, as I say that, don't think that I'm saying that God is making wonderful people do bad things. No, what God has to do to enable people to do wickedly is take his hands off of them. Okay, does that make sense? So notice here, God's decreative will is going to be fulfilled by the beast and his minions, but because they're giving allegiance to the forces opposite of God, they're breaking God's moral will. Now, we saw the same thing in Acts when Bob was bringing us through Acts chapter 2. Turn to that, and you'll see another example of God's decretive will being fulfilled by those who are breaking his moral will. Acts 2, verses 22 through 23. In fact, does somebody have, um, I won't have Bob read, <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> Somebody's got the microphone. Uh, Steve, do you still have it? Oh, I'm sorry. Eric, do you have it? Would you mind reading Acts 2.22 through 23? I didn't put it in my notes here. I used to have it memorized, but it slipped out of my Rolodex here.
1: (laughs) Acts 2.22?
0: Yeah, through 23. We'll read both. Through 23. Just about got it.
1: Sure, no problem. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men
0: Notice Jesus was put to death by the predetermined plan of God so that's his decree of will And yet Peter can say, you crucified him, you murdered him, you broke his moral will. And so when I'm talking about the decretive will and the moral will, I'm not making it up, okay? Some people, now it's one will of God, but I think we can break it into two parts. There's a decretive will and a moral will. And to say that that doesn't exist is simply false. We see evidence of that in scripture, that it really does exist. And so this explains to us then God's providential control of the world. He even uses the forces of evil for his purposes. Now, I'm not going to talk about the election. I was rather gleeful, but I know that uh, salvation doesn't come through even the the party with the R behind it, right? The party of the elephant, although the elephant's better than the donkey. But anyway, what we have to know is that God providentially uses even wicked rulers, right? The Apostle Paul said that we had to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Who was in charge when Paul said that? Nero. Nero is as wicked as they come. Uh, Bob and I have been teaching the worldview that comes out of Deuteronomy 32. I'm sorry, Greg, ask that again. It's a very good question. Yeah, so put it on tape there. So Sorry, that was very good. Does Satan uh, realize that he's being used? You know, I don't know. The one thing, I, I just I'll be honest, I don't know if we can know that, but one thing he does know, remember he says, uh, this is I think in chapter 13, he says he knows his time is short. Okay, we saw that in, in fact, chapter 11 and 12 as well. He knows his time is short. So he knows some things, but I don't know if he knows that his power is derived ultimately from God. I just don't know if we have any data to suggest that. I mean, it just might be my ignorance, but I don't know if I can pull the trigger and say, yes, he knows he's being used, uh, or perhaps he's deceived and really thinks he's doing these things. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, but good, but good question. And if anyone ever finds evidence, let me know. Do you have some?
2: Romans 8, 28.
0: All things... We need to know if they're literal or not. God works all things together for the good. Oh yeah, so, in uh, Romans eight twenty eight, yeah, like in other passages, if all things is literal, yeah, in God's providential will. <laughs> poor, poor, poor guy. Yeah, very good. Bob is pointing out, like in Romans eight twenty eight, where uh, remember the apostle Paul says, God works out all things for the good for those who love Him are called according to His purpose. And Bob is just saying we have to define whether all things really means all things. And what we're learning here is, yes, (laughs) even Satan and the Antichrist is being used for God's purposes. If the Antichrist can be used for God's purposes, he's in control of all things and is using all things for our benefit. And I'll tell you where there's a practical application for us. This isn't easy for me, and I'm sure it's not easy for you. And I think of Milford to accept God's providential will when the call comes and the, the news from the doctor isn't good. To say that that God is using that for my good is not easy for us to accept. Okay, I stub my toe and I'm convinced it's, you know, some satanic plot and God can't be in control of it. That's, you know, right? And we have to say, no, all things. My flat tire, my whatever, my problem with my child, the, the issues that I have in life. God is in control and he's using all things for the good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't excuse us from breaking God's moral law. We shall not go on sinning so that grace may abound. May it never be, Paul says. But we just have to know in our lives that God does use all things and that's everything. Yeah. When you had just mentioned shortly ago
2: about uh, God uh, ultimately being responsible for the murder of Christ, yeah. on top of that, I can't recall the verse, but he was glad to do that yes so it
0: pleased him he was pleased yeah he was pleased exactly um in isaiah 53 he was he was pleased to crush him exactly right it was pleasing to god and so yes it's pleasing to god to see the death of his son to bring about his decretive will and yet those who did it are breaking god's moral will and there's no contradiction yeah well said isaiah 53 i can't remember the exact verse um but yep it's in isaiah 53 yeah well said brian thank you very good Now, let me um, keep moving on for the sake of time. I'm going to come back on this last slide, and we'll talk more about accepting God's providential will. But I want you to notice here these blasphemies that I have highlighted in red that the Antichrist is speaking. That was predicted in the book of Daniel. And so the Antichrist isn't someone who just lets God off the hook, but he antagonizes God. He blasphemes God. And isn't it interesting, would you ever blaspheme something that doesn't exist? So the point is the enemy of God knows that he exists. He knows the reality of Yahweh. And he blasphemes and slanders him. Now, what is blasphemy and slander? I think they go hand in hand. It's misrepresenting God's character. It's also speaking presumptuously as if you're God. And both things are true in blasphemy. And I want you to see that this is prophesied in Daniel 7, 8. Remember, hundreds of years prior to Christ's coming, Daniel wrote this. He says, while I was contemplating the horns... Behold, another horn, here's the Antichrist, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So part of the blasphemy of the Antichrist is the fact that he puts himself into the position of God. He usurps God's authority. Go back to the garden. What was the original sin? Remember, Satan says to Eve, did God really say that you can't eat of all of these trees? So he distorts the word. There was only one tree. And she cracks him. She says, no, there was only one tree that we couldn't eat of. And then Satan counters. He says, well, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. So the original temptation is to be like God. Now you have one who's claiming to be what? God. That's the ultimate blasphemy. And every time we sin... What we are ultimately doing is declaring ourselves to be God. No different than Eve in the garden. Has God really said, Won't I know the difference between good and evil, become my own lawgiver, and be like God? That's ultimately what sin is. Sin is cosmic treason against God, saying, I'm God, I'm king. And daily, as you and I are being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ, we realize that. And we're learning that, that, you know what, what I just did there, we're convicted by the Spirit. Who says, what you did there is a usurping of God and his authority. And it weighs heavily upon us. In the unregenerate realm, it does not weigh heavily upon them. They blaspheme God and usurp his authority with reckless abandon. And they're never convicted by the spirit. Is is that right? That is right, isn't it? That's the difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate. Okay, so again, we are given some insights here into the Antichrist by his blasphemy He blasphemes God by making himself to be God. In fact, we see that in 2 Thessalonians 2 that he'll set himself up where? Into the temple. And he'll claim himself to be God. And by the way, that's how we know that there's going to be a rebuilt temple. The Apostle Paul is very clear in 2 Thessalonians 2 that there's this Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple. Now let's think about that for a moment. In 70 A.D., remember Proterus tried to claim all these things were fulfilled at the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 A.D which Roman dictator set himself up in the temple and declared himself to be God? It didn't happen. Okay, so when the Apostle Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians, we know that that cannot be fulfilled in 70 AD, and he's obviously referring to a future character who does this, ergo what? It must happen in the future still yet today. Okay, that's why we know, again, the futurist interpretation of Revelation and our general eschatology is indeed correct. Okay, now, before I move off, does anybody else have any comments or questions? Any thoughts? Okay, I'll move on to the next slide here. We see that the beast attacks God's people. Revelation 13, verses 7 through 8. It says, It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now, dear ones, notice here in the very beginning again in verse 7, we have a divine passive. It was also given to him to what? To make war with the saints. So believers that are living during the last seven years, they have to accept this. They have to say that the war against us by the Antichrist, that's given to the Antichrist by God. God is in control of that. Can you imagine having to accept that? But yet it's true. All things, God causes all things to work out for the good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. All right? Now, I want to point out another thing. Notice here, as the Antichrist makes war against the people of God, I want you to understand that that's limited to the last three and a half years primarily. Okay? So for the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, there's relative safety and peace for the people of Israel And the the saints even. Why? Well, because there's been a covenant that the Antichrist has made. Now, I want you to see evidence of this in the Olivet Discourse. So turn your Bibles open. There was so much data that I wanted to get into, I couldn't get it all on my screen here. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, verses 4 through 17. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to realize as we turn here that when the Antichrist wages war, it's really limited to the last three and a half years. And I want you to see evidence of that. So again, turn your Bibles to Matthew 24. We'll start in verse 4. So we'll do a little bit of reading here. The better we understand our all of a discourse, we're going to be really set up well, I think, to understand eschatology in general. Matthew 24, 4. So here's Jesus answering the question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? Remember, he begins with the second question first. It says, Jesus answered them and Answered them, says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, this is, I believe, happening within the 70th week. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, earthquakes in various places but all these are about the beginning of birth pains. Now stop there. Notice he talks about wars and rumors of wars, nation rising up against nation, famines, etc. Remember the beginning of Daniel's 70th week is written about in Revelation 6. And remember at the fourth seal, at the very beginning of the 70th week, we saw wars, we saw sword, famine, pestilence and wild beasts. That's the beginning of the birth pangs. But notice Jesus says, do not be alarmed. Why? Because those wars are going to be travail over the world, but not over Israel. Israel is given a pass. Why? Because Antichrist has made a covenant. And therefore, they have his protection. So it's interesting that Jesus is telling the Jews, don't be concerned when you see these things. And those things are fulfilled at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Okay, now he breaks into the midpoint. Right in verse 9, does everyone see verse 9 of Matthew 24? Okay, we have a a discourse marker, then, which is a timing indicator. So we're at the midpoint now. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another. So this is all the second half of the 70th week. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, that is the end of the 70th week, will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. We know that even an angel is going to proclaim the gospel in the 70th week, in the last half. Okay? Now, what's interesting is notice we get to verse 15. Jesus has just given us a purview of the entire 70th week. The midpoint was at verse 9. Now, by way of recapitulation, he brings us back to the midpoint in verse 15. Verse 15. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, parenthetically it says, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea are to what? Flee to the mountains. Okay, now stop there. When does the, the abomination of desolation occur? Well, we know it happens at the midpoint, doesn't it? So notice Jesus is bringing us back to the midpoint. We know it's the midpoint because of Daniel nine twenty seven. Remember in the middle of the week? The Antichrist breaks his covenant, right? And he sets himself up to be God. So that happens at the midpoint. Well, then Jesus says, you better be concerned. Then those who are in Judea better flee to the mountains. Now, what that's indicating to us then is the first three and a half years are relatively peaceful for the people of Israel. It's at the midpoint that everything goes downhill for them, that Antichrist is pursuing them. So as we're reading here in Revelation 13, realize this is at the midpoint onward. It's the last three and a half years, okay? Now, talking about applications from the Olivet Discourse, notice when he says those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I always make that little quip. What are we to do as Christians in Minnesota? Flee to Buck Hill, right? How do you apply that? And the reason I say this is because those who critique us as being pre -pre tribulationists they'll say, well, look, you escapists. You have no application from the Olivet Discourse. Oh, yes, we do. You see, it's not that we pre tribulationists don't apply the all of a Discourse. The issue is how we apply it. And the way I apply the all of a Discourse to my life, and the way I think you should as well, is you can know that God is faithful to his promises. Why is that not a sufficient application? To know that everything that God has foretold through the prophets is actually going to come about, and we yawn at that? Well, what else would be the application? Again, you're defle- if they're to flee to Judea, what are you to do? Okay, and I I pose that to anyone who believes that we're going to be here during the tribulation period. What are the people of God to do around the world to to flee to a local mountain? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, he's speaking directly to the Jews. This is Israel-centric here. Why? Because they're the ones who are primarily left there in the 70th week and under the assault of Antichrist.
2: Yeah. And I think one Thessalonians, we're told to look forward to Christ, not look forward
0: to Satan. Exactly right. The blessed hope is not coming of Antichrist, it's the coming of Christ. And so, when in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Paul says that we have not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's just talked about the day of the Lord. So, we're exempt from God's wrath. So, the only issue we're arguing about, when does wrath come? And what did we prove in the book of Revelation, chapter 6? The wrath begins at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts, that's the beginning, fourth seal, the beginning of the 70th week, that was wrath back in Ezekiel 14, 21. Why is it not wrath now? Well, you know why people don't want it to be the wrath? Because it goes against their view. (laughs) So well said. Exactly. We're exempt from the wrath of God. The only thing we're arguing about is when when does the wrath begin? And it begins at the beginning of the 70th week. So, dear ones, what I want you to see then is when the Antichrist pursues the saints and he's overcoming them, this was to happen in the last three and a half years. That's the timeline. And we see that alluded to even in the Olivet Discourse. Here, I've also got a um, Daniel 7.25 reference. I just want you to see that this is also prophesied. Notice the Antichrist is referred to here. It says, He will speak out against the Most High, that's the blasphemies, and what? Wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for how long? For time, one, times, that's two, that's three together, And half a time, that's three and a half. It's three and a half years. So again, Daniel tells us that it's for three and a half years. So that's how you have to interpret Revelation. Revelation, 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 278 of those verses have direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is built off the Old Testament. If we don't understand Daniel, we're not going to understand the book of Revelation. Now, one other thing I want to talk to you about is I want to talk about the doctrine of election And the, in sense, opposite of that, reprobation. Notice here in verse 8, who is it that worships the Antichrist? Well, it's all who dwell on the earth. Now, I can't remember, I had it memorized at one time, but that phrase, all who dwell on the earth, or those who dwell on the earth, I think it occurs eight times in the book of Revelation. Every single time that that phrase is used, it's a reference to the unbelievers. Okay? Every single time. So, what's interesting is, who is it that gives their allegiance to the beast? Well, unbelievers do. But notice how God defines them through the Apostle John. He says, It's all who dwell upon the earth, they will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world. Does everyone see that? They're the ones who have not been had their names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. The term foundation there, katabole, is used in Ephesians one four. Now I want you to see the distinction. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians one four. I want you to see that you and I have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and the enemies of God were not written in the book of life and therefore put in Christ bef- before the foundation of the world all right Ephesians 1:4 Ephesians 1:4 Paul says this He says just as he that's God chose us there's the believers In him, that's Christ, in his sphere, before the foundation of the world, katabole, meaning before it was laid. So this is before the creative act of creation. Before the foundation was laid, that what? Here's the purpose, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So clearly, you and I have been chosen before the foundation of the world, before creation, to be in Christ. But the clear indication is these have not been chosen, Okay, now think about, and i 'm going to be talking about this today in the sermon in exodus thirty three nineteen God says, "I will have compassion upon those whom I have compassion, and I will be gracious to those whom I will be gracious to. God is sovereignly in charge of those whom he 's going to save and those that He does not. One of the interesting things that Bob and I have uh, going together to be able to work together and a blessing for us is we keep working on theology. And one thing that he brought up that's been a big influence on my theology is many people look at the doctrine of election as a a point of division. But when the apostle Paul and the other apostles raised it, it was really designed to be a source of encouragement. Because if you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, do you think you're ever going to lose your salvation? No. Think about Romans 8.30. For those whom he predestined, he called for those whom he called he justified for those that he justified he also what, glorified Amen. so you can take that to the bank but again this passage is teaching the sovereignty of God that God chooses some for salvation and others who won't make it and it's something that it's not it, it's before the foundation of the world so it's not dependent on what human beings do not a, dependent on who, who human beings are it's dependent purely and solely upon God's good pleasure and, and, and we're going to see today in the sermon that that's the definition of grace alone. That salvation is only of God and his doing. Okay, now, let's, for the sake of time, move on to our last slide here. Revelation 13, 9 through 10. I like the Lexham English Bible. Bob turned me on to that. I really like that version. The Net Bible, too, is another good one. And there's so many good ones out there now. But let me read it, and I'll explain why this is to be preferred. John says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is going into captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, by the sword he is to be killed. Here is the patient endurance and the faith of the saints. Now, let me just explain something. Does every, anyone, I'm sure some of you have, is everyone familiar with the term textual criticism? Are people familiar with that? I know several are, obviously Bob and Dana and others. What textual criticism is, is we have over 5,000 manuscripts and copies of manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay? They're called apographs. They're not the originals. They're copies of, you know, obviously the, the originals that were penned by the apostles. Well, we have a textual issue in this passage. And so what I want you to realize is that I think the, the LEB Bible here has the right rendering. Let me read to you the NESB's version. And I want you to see the difference. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Listen carefully, and maybe you have the NASB follow along. The same passage says in the NASB, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Do you hear the distinction? Notice the qualifier in the NASB. If anyone kills by the sword, then they're going to be killed by the sword. Okay, but the implication from the LEB is if anyone is to be killed by the sword, that is, it's destined to them, then they're going to be killed by the sword. So them being killed by the sword is not dependent upon their action in the LEB, but upon the sovereign choice of God. Okay, let me just assure you, I've done a lot of research into the textual arguments. The LEB has the best evidence. You can read, by the way, the, uh, if anyone wants to understand textual issues, get a net Bible, the New English Translation. You can get one online if you're curious. Um, I think they have them online. But if you ever have a textual issue, Dan Wallace and his, a bunch of people on his staff had put that net Bible together. And they do a great job in showing you the textual issues. And they'll show you why the LEB and versions like this are to be preferred. Now, why is that important? Well, some have taken the NASB version. Again, the NASB version says if anyone kills with the sword, well, then they're going to be killed by the sword. And so whether or not you're killed by the sword is dependent upon your action. If you kill, then you're going to be killed. And some have taken that as an indication that the Bible teaches pacifism, that we ought not to ever take up the sword. Well, as you see from the LEB that that's not true. What's being taught here is not pacifism, but the sovereignty of God the fact that God is providentially in control. And so what John is saying via the Holy Spirit is that if you have been ordained to be killed, even as a believer living during the 70th week of Daniel, it'll happen. And what we have to do is accept it. And that's why he says, here is the patient endurance and the faith of the saints that we have to, yes, Eric.
1: Um, And then, okay, you know, I'm running into, I was just up deer hunting for a couple weeks. Yeah. you know, naturally talking about biblical truth to people, and they say, "Which Bible do you read?" And I say, "Well, we read the one that is from the Hebrew, and the Greek, yeah. and the Ar- a little bit of Aramaic." And yeah. so, this text that we're looking at right here—if you were to look at the Greek—yeah—which I, I think you've probably done.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: You're telling me, and I'm I'm believing you. Yeah. By the way, that. That is the better rendering, if you look at the Greek, the, the, the Greek context and the Greek grammar and, and all of that. Absolutely. Right?
0: okay. yep, that's exactly right. By the way, um, Dana Birkinshaw is going to be giving a message about how we got our canon. Is that correct? Um, and we'll do that at some point. What he's going to get into is how do we determine which what we really have is a textual issue, where some readings are saying this, and other readings are saying that. And there's a bunch of rules that these textual critics have put together which enables them to really get at what has the best reading. And oftentimes they're looking at things like, what's the more difficult reading? Because oftentimes what would happen is a copyist would try to smooth things over, smooth things out. You're also looking at the totality of the manuscripts. You're also looking at which manuscripts came earlier. You're also looking at what's the most likely error. Sometimes an error is very easily discerned because there's words that sound alike. Um, So they're looking at all these things, and... We actually have, um, for those of you, when you're, you go to seminary, you actually get a little book. It's called Textual Criticism, put out by Bruce Metzger of the New Testament. And what happens is in this little manual, they'll list out all the discrepancies within the New Testament, and there's a grade given to them, A, B, C, D. And so if you look up one passage, it says A, you know that the, the people who have delved into this textual criticism, they're absolutely certain that this is really the, the best reading. But if you go to B it's still pretty certain, but it's less certain. C, they're, it could go, maybe go a little bit either way. D, they're kind of saying, you know, I'm, I don't know. So what's interesting is this textual criticism piece here is an A. I, and I think we know that this is the correct reading. And, 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 it, and it ties into me the theology of what John is teaching because notice here in verse 10 he says, here is the patient endurance and faith of the saints. What he's getting at is that we have to accept God's providential will in our lives, and so to me, even contextually, that reading makes better sense than a warning. Well, you better not use the sword. That would be way out of place. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Brian.
2: The verse uh, nine, Revelation. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Yeah. Is also a good proof text for the pre-tribulation rapture. Because if you go back in early Revelation, yep. it's always, if you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit
0: has said. And to the seven churches. Like
2: five or six examples throughout the seven letters. Exactly. And here, that's omitted because we're not here.
0: Yeah, you know what? I, I would say, um, notice it does have, if anyone has an ear, let him hear, here in verse 9. I, here's the issue. When this is written, it's written to all of us. And remember, it's also written to those who are going to be living during the 70th week. And I'm actually going to show you when we get to Revelation 16 that there's actually a parenthetical comment that's given to the reader to stand firm, okay? So I don't think I would use that as a necessarily proof for the pre-trib rapture um, because it's given to all people, whether you live in the 70th week or you don't, okay? But you're exactly right. That refrain is given to all seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. So think about John in uh, John 10, when Jesus says, um, my sheep hear my voice, right? The hearing, el el-kuo, is not just the hearing of the sensation of sound, but it's hearing in a saving way, okay? And so that's why, remember, uh, God rebukes Israel for having uncircumcised ears. They're not hearing. So hearing is always a saving thing. So when he says, he who has an ear, it's really a, a reference to the regenerated, because only the regenerate have an ear to hear, Okay? That is, that they actually believe. And so you write all seven churches, there's this promise. He was an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That shows you, when that refrain is given to the seven churches, that God is speaking not just to those specific churches like Smyrna, Thyatira, but to every Christian. Okay, So that's a very good takeaway here, is that we can say this, this applies to every Christian. Okay, You and I standing on this side of the 70th week, we haven't entered in, we can be confident that God is faithful and in control, and that's a blessing to us. But those who are living in it will also know. And so, yeah, it's for all believers. Yeah, very good point. Thanks for raising that. Very good. Yeah, Eric. I got
1: the microphone, so I'm I'm just, you know. (laughs) Good, yeah. uh, uh, On the textual criticism point, I want to just emphasize, and, and I know you'll agree, that when it comes to the central gospel that we are sinners saved by grace alone through Jesus Christ son of god resurrected there's no i mean <laughs> that's that's not anything where you're where anyone is uh, you know kind of exactly looking right. at the finer points of textual criticism that is it doesn't matter what extent uh, uh, a copy of, of a manuscript out of the five they they're all identical in that regard, and that's something we gotta always remember because yeah. nonbelievers they love to jump on little textual criticism issues and say, "Well, what about salvation?" You know, and, and right. that's not at all.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. King James only. Yeah, very well said. Let me say this: We're getting closer to the original autographs today then we're closer to it than Luther was, okay? So throughout history, we have better manuscripts today than they've ever had. And you're right, there's no doctrinal issue in question. Think of this example. Let me just give it just kind of a crass example, but let's say my wife wrote a letter to me, a a grocery list, and she said, go get milk, (coughs) eggs, and bread, okay? Well, then if I took that copy and I gave it to 10 people and they all copied, go get milk, eggs, and bread... But one of those rascals wrote, "Go get milk, eggs, and a candy bar." Well, if we compared the nine that say, "Go get milk, eggs, and bread," and there's one that's different, we'd say, "Well, this one's there's a this is a three dollar bill. It's not original. These nine others have this." Okay, so we wouldn't have any difficulty in discerning what the original was. Are you with me? Okay. So when we look at all these discrepancies, we have a lot of that. Do you, you see what I'm saying? So it's not like, well, we're just clueless as to what the truth is. We know what it is, and we're getting better all the time. So, yeah, I'm sorry. There's one really
1: bad problem. Mark 16 it oh. is the doctrinal issue.
0: Oh, exactly right. Um, Bob makes a great point. In Mark 16, if you look at verses 8 through, I think, 20 is the end of the book, the, those aren't original verses to the Bible. And our best manuscripts support that. Now, why is that important? Because in Matthew 16, is it verse 16? Well, here, I'll look. I'm sorry, not Matthew, Mark. Mark 16, 16. Let's turn our Bibles once. I'll show you some theology that becomes aberrant if you accept something that's not original to the text of Scripture. Turn your Bibles to Mark 16. And by the way, many of your Bibles will have parentheses around verses 8 through 20. I think it's verse 8. Or maybe it's after verse 8, verse 9. Verse 9 through 20 to show you that it's not original. And by by the way, before I go any further, realize one of the reasons why Mark leaves at verse 8, he is writing a gospel of action. What does he leave you with? The resurrection. Okay, that's Mark's way. Remember, the most common phrase in Mark is immediately. He just goes from one big thing to another. All of a sudden, he's raised from the dead, and that's what he wants to leave you with. And so not only do our manuscripts show us that verses 9 through 20 are not original, but I think even contextually, that's just how Mark writes. But notice here in Mark 16... Yeah, here, here's one. I know there's others in here as well. Turn, look at verse 16 of Mark 16. Notice whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I made a point about that in my message on baptism. Many people who believe in baptismal regeneration will say, aha, baptism in Mark 16, 16 is necessary for salvation. But the first rebuttal that we have to give is that's not Scripture. Okay, the second I would give is, notice the second clause within the verse. It's only those who do not believe that are condemned anyway. Okay, so those who don't believe are condemned. It doesn't say those who don't believe and are not baptized. Okay, but that's a theological issue that is raised because people are adopting a reading of Mark that isn't there. There's another one. Where is it, Bob, where they're called to do these? Oh, yeah, here it is, The verse 18. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will hands on their... They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Oh, in verse 17, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Well, how many people, especially in certain denominations, have gotten, yeah, cults have gotten bit by various snakes because they take this passage? They're going around handling serpents. Okay? Well, why are they doing that? Well, they shouldn't because this is, of course, not scripture. So I want you to realize that there's a lot in this text that ends up giving aberrant theology to different groups and cults claiming that they have a promise from God that they can do these things when in fact they are not given those promises. Are are you with me on that?
1: So why is it
0: in there? Because there were manuscripts. Think about you have for hundreds and hundreds of years, you have people that are writing copies. And at one point you have a guy a copyist, a scholar who says, I don't like the ending, it's too abrupt. He must have meant something more. He
2: wanted a candy
0: bar. Exactly, he wanted a candy bar. And it gets intruded into the apographs into the, the But what we can do is we look at, okay, what do the earliest manuscripts say? Do they have it? Well, no. Well, what does the totality of the manuscripts say? Well, we look at that. Um, which manuscripts are regarded as the most reliable? What is the most likely reading of Mark contextually? So they're looking at all these things and many more things. Um, And Dana is going to give us a very good primer on textual criticism when we come to that. And we'll look at the rules uh, together. But no, I just want to assure you that we know that it ends at verse 8. And to say otherwise is going against the preponderance of the evidence. So here's what I want to leave you with. We are assured of our scriptures. And we have better textual manuscripts today than we've ever had. So we're getting closer to the original autographs, not further away. And that's a huge blessing. And that's why we should applaud scholarship like uh, people like Dan Wallace and those who, uh, Bruce Metzger, who went before him, people who do these types of things. So anyway, the big picture I want you to leave you you with here is when he says this is the patient endurance and the faith of the saints. Brothers and sisters, the patience and endurance of the saints is that we accept the providential will of God. And what that means is that in your life, even when the bad news comes, you have to be convinced in light of the evidence of Scripture that God has indeed caused all things to work out for your good. It may not feel like it. It may not seem like it in light of general revelation and what we see, but it's true. It's true in light of Scripture. Okay, with that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word like an instrument panel that we can fly in a dark night that even though the world is in turmoil around us, we know that you are the King of kings and that you've decreed all things for the sake of your glory and your name and for the sake of your people, that you will conform us to the image of your Son, that you will raise us up on the last day and we'll all be partakers of this glorious kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us um, solid manuscripts. You've given us the Word of God and even textual scholars who help us know these things. And we thank you for all of these great gifts. In your precious name we pray, amen.